0: With us today is Admiral James DiBretti. He was Supreme Allied Commander of NATO for four years. He's a retired four-star admiral in the Navy. And now he's Vice Chairman of Global Affairs for the Carlisle Group, Chairman of the Board of Trustees for the Rockefeller Foundation. He must be one trusted person. Admiral, I'm proud to call you a friend.
1: It is my honor to be your friend, John Captain at What a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Uh, Admiral, there's so many problems in the world. Uh, Where should we start off this morning?
1: I think we should start with Ukraine, because people are probably wondering, John, about the Kragosian Rebellion, and this happened, as we know, about 10 days ago, and this is a very dangerous man named Yevgeny Kragosian, who is the head of the Wagner Group, uh, a global mercenary firm that has killed Tens of thousands of people in Africa, in the Middle East, and most recently in Ukraine. So, 10 days ago, Yevgeny Khrushchev evidently rebelled against Vladimir Putin and led a charge of Wagner troops north from southern Russia toward Moscow and he got within 125 miles of Moscow. So, this would be though rebels came flowing out of Florida, drove up Highway 95, and were finally stopped at Richmond, just over 100 miles from the U.S. capital of Washington, D.C. So this rebellion becomes a backdrop, and as suddenly as it began, it stops. Um, A deal is cut by the president of Belarus. Krogosian agrees to go into exile in Belarus. Minsk is the city. And we think, okay, that is the end of this. Now we come to the present, John, and two days ago we hear that Pradozian, according to Lukashenko, the leader of Belarus, Pradozian is now back in Russia. Maybe he's in Moscow. Maybe he's in St. Petersburg. So the big question that Russia watchers are dealing with today is whether Vladimir Putin will bring back Evgeny Prigozhin, bring this vile creature back and pull him towards him again in order to regain control of these Wagner troops, or, equally plausibly, Prigozhin could be there for interrogation, trial, imprisonment, or even execution. So, John, we just don't know. And it is an indication, I'll close with this it's an indication that Vladimir Putin's hold on power. Which looked very firm six months ago now looks a bit
0: shakier. The, the intelligence I had is uh, he never went to uh, Belarus. Uh, none of his troops ever went to Belarus. That's an open point. and he could not take over Moscow with a mere eight to ten thousand people. Maybe uh, the, the other possibility was that Putin was uh, waiting to see which of his generals.
1: Mike, uh, tag in with you. John, I think you're on the right track because what often happens in these crisis situations, people get very careless about what they say on their cell phone, who they call, what they do with their personal finances. Um, Many of these oligarchs who Putin might have thought would be loyal to him were jumping into private jets and blowing out of Moscow as fast as they could. So, you are absolutely correct. Uh, Putin has used this Prigozhin rebellion to target not just the generals, but the oligarchs who are really the economic drivers in this society. I think Putin has refined his enemies list, and you're going to see one after another after another pulled into Leforto prison, the main prison in Moscow for interrogation stripping of their assets, um, ultimately punishments, perhaps some executions. uh, All of that will be how Putin responds to these events. But the mystery, John, remains of Pradozian. I think we'll know more in a few weeks. One to watch in this, if you're watching this situation, watch the status of the Russian Minister of Defense, a man named Schweigu. He is a deep enemy of Purgosian. And if you see Schweigü fall and be repressed himself, it means Purgosian is on the rise. If Schweigü stays in power, I think things look much worse for Yevgeny Purgosian going
0: forward. Now, where where does Ukraine stand? I mean, I understand Mm -hmm. President Biden has authorized custom bombs to to go over there in the last couple of days. Is the war continuing? It it sounds to me like the the people are suffering a great deal on on all of it. Indeed, John, you're right.
1: And I often say there are really two wars in Ukraine. One is the land war, which the Ukrainians are on the front foot. They are in the process of cranking up what I think will be a big offensive. Uh, watch for that to develop over the next uh, few weeks, next month or two, really bringing all these tanks and armor that had been provided by the West to bear on this long Russian front line. So that land war, I think, continues to trend toward the Ukrainians. I think it is a smart move on the part of the U.S. to provide the cluster munitions that could help unlock that offensive going forward. That's the land war. John, the other war is the air war. Here, the Russians are on the front foot. And to your point, this is why the Ukrainian people are suffering so grievously. It's because Putin has more or less command of the air. He can launch cruise missiles. He can send manned bomber aircraft in. He takes some losses. The Ukrainians shoot down a fair amount. On the other hand, many of these... Cruise missiles and bombs are killing civilians. They're used indiscriminately to target civilian population centers. So that air war, my view, is where the administration should step up and provide F-16s. They are authorizing training, but the next logical step is to bring that F-16 fighting falcon, it's called, uh, to the battlefield, to the skies over Ukraine. I think that would help Ukrainians in this. Second war that's going on, and by the way, it would have a very strong effect on the ground war because that F-16 can not only do air-to-air combat, it can also be very effective in air-to-ground attacking troops, military formations. So, time for the administration to really lean in on the F-16.
0: Admiral, me and you have spoken a lot about China, a lot about Taiwan. A lot about the conflicts. Our Secretary of State made a visit there last week. Is there any update with China? I mean, what what, what is happening there? Is there a hope for peace? Let
1: me let me start with a bit of bad news, which was the announcement a couple of weeks ago, or I should say the revelation a couple of weeks ago, that China is going to construct a brand new, very capable espionage facility in Cuba. That's 100 miles from Florida, and as you and I both know, John, Florida has the largest concentration of military power, particularly high-end command and control of any state in the Union. Three of our nine combatant commands, the leaders of our military forces, are in Florida. That is the Special Operations Command in Tampa, its sister command, the Central Command in charge of all of the Middle East, And a command I used to hold, uh, U.S. Southern Command, all military activities south of the United States. That's in Doral, Florida. As well, we have very advanced acoustic test ranges, flight ranges in the panhandle of Florida. It's a target-rich environment for espionage. So the fact that China is working with Cuba to build up a significant espionage activity there does not bode well. That's kind of the bad news. Here's your point, John, and it's a good one. Um, there has been good news on the U.S.-China front in the past week, and you're correct. It's not only the visit, a couple weeks ago now, our Tony Blinken, our Secretary of State, but Janet Yellen, our Secretary of the Treasury. We've also learned directly the CIA. Bill Burns, himself a former ambassador, has been in touch with China. That's good for U.S.-China relations, but again... My question is, where is the military-to-military contact between U.S. and China? Our Secretary of Defense can't get his calls returned from Beijing. Our Chairman of the Joint Chiefs has not spoken to his counterpart in years. Um, There's no hotline between Beijing and Moscow for military. That's what I worry about, John, is an unintended incident in the South China Sea between ships and aircraft of the two nations, and no way to diffuse it because there's no military-to-military contact. So, yes, it's good, but we need more contact at the military level.
0: We have about 30 seconds left. The White House, uh, ever since we changed chief of staff in the White House, it seems a a little bit more common sense and more moderate. Have you seen that? Uh, Well, I know the new
1: chief of staff very well. I've worked with him over the years, Jeff Stein, and I am uh, very impressed with everything he does. Um, he's very low-key, stays out of the limelight, and I think takes a very pragmatic approach. So uh, I would say that we have a, a good chief of staff in the White House in these
0: turbulent times. Admiral, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Thank you for everything you've done for our country and continue to speak out for our country. Let us
1: know about your books. I will. Coming up in March, the next one is 2052 about artificial intelligence and war, 2054 is the title. Wow. Thanks, John. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you. PriorityGoldGuide.com.